We're going to deal with a non-controversial issue. <laughs> um, I have four kids, two boys, two girls, 13 grandkids, and they're all believers. And one of my sons is in L.A. He's at a MacArthur-like church. He's an elder, and he's, um, I'm doing my best to equip him in New Covenant theology. And he is, of 13 elders, he's the, he's the outlier. And uh, so it's interesting. So this is, so he, from his point of view, we're dealing with dispensational questions. Whereas typically, since, I, you know, we're very much, I'm a Calvinist with a big C, uh, then I deal with more questions from a covenant theology point of view. So we get them from both sides. And so this is what we're going to do. We're going to see how the Bible fits together, that is New Covenant theology, how it fits together, how the old relates to the new. We're going to look at it through sort of the four particular lenses. And the provocative title is it's replacement theology from beginning to end. And we're going to talk about covenants. It's a replacement theology with regard to covenants. Then we're going to talk about it's a replacement theology with regard to the people of God, the old to the new. Then we're going to talk about replacement theology with regard to the land promise, land of Canaan, the promised land, old and new. And then we're going to talk about replacement theology with regard to law from the old to the new. We're going to talk about that. So at every turn, now, typically... I'm in the midst of just trying to finish up a book on New Covenant theology, but the title is Picture Fulfillment, a study in New Covenant theology. But the, so m- many guys of my ilk, theologically, will sometimes, they will typically say, well, I, I don't want to use the word replacement theology, it's fulfillment. Well, of course it is. And I purposely... Uh, bug Steve to use this particular title, even though it's thinned out his mailing list a little bit when he made the announcement, uh, because sometimes you'll talk to New Covenant teachers, New Covenant theology teachers, and they will say, well, you know, I don't hold the replacement theology, I hold to fulfillment theology. Quite frankly, my response is, liar, liar, pants on fire, because you really do. And I just want to be above board with what I hold. I just want to be above board. I don't, you know, I probably use the word fulfillment way more than I would use, uh, you know, it takes the place of. But it is that. So th- th- this is the disclaimer. When you're talking about Scripture, as far as the historical plan of salvation from Genesis to Revelation, it is one seamless plan. One seamless plan. So there's so from that point of view, it's not replacement at all. Just one seamless plan. This is God's eternal decrees and unfolding. But when you're reading scripture, it is very clearly replacement. When we're reading it, as far as the role of covenants, Israel, law. Okay, that's where we're going. And we're going to begin with covenants. And we're going to begin with the Abrahamic covenant. So turn to Genesis 15. Even as we start, if you have any questions, that was my opening monologue. Uh, Please fire away if you have a question. Okay. Okay. 
Uh, yeah, okay. Are there any covenants? And I purposely, cause only, because we only have an hour on covenants, so uh, I don't believe there's a covenant in the garden. Okay. Now, my point of view is a minority point of view. That's true. But the, it all depends what you mean by a covenant in the garden. So that's really, uh, I wouldn't necessarily quibble about that, but depends what you mean. We're probably, uh, Steve and I were thinking, I'm speaking here tomorrow morning. I just figured out what I'm going to talk on, but I'm not telling him yet. Um, but I was just thinking, you know, because I typically, you know, you, you come in, you drop a bomb, and then you leave. And uh, so I think we'll do that tomorrow. Uh, but we'll talk about covenant in the garden a little bit tomorrow. Uh, but so you have that. Then you have the Noahic covenant, Genesis eight to nine. You have that, but that's just a covenant of preservation. It's the guarantee the world is going to stick around until God's plan of salvation is accomplished. So there's no global warming, notwithstanding greenhouse effect. We're not going to things aren't going to prematurely come to an end until you know that's the rainbow. Uh, I know until His plan is completed. Okay, so the Noahic covenant is not salvation. Because it's made with people and gerbils. It is with all creation. So, but it's just the guarantee that um, there is, you know, that the world will stick around. I mean, there is a very uh, significant work uh, by a couple of really good guys from Southern Seminary in Louisville. And, and they tried to make the case, it's a bit of a Hebrew exercise, uh, that... The Noahic covenant is a restatement of a covenant in the garden. It's a restatement. And the, I mean, I'll be very honest with you, I don't know how you get that because there's nothing about the Noahic covenant that's even remotely, even if you bought a covenant in a the garden, they're so different. The only thing they have in common is that you have to populate the earth. That's true. You got to, because there's, that's the way it is. But beyond that, there's nothing similar. But we can discuss that another time. But I'm focusing in on those covenants that particularly deal with salvation in some way, shape, or form. So that's basically the Abrahamic covenant, which we're going to look at first. Then the old covenant with Israel on Mount Sinai, okay, which establishes them as the people of God. And then we're going to talk about the new covenant. That's what we're going to do during this session. Okay? So, Abrahamic, yes? No, throw it out. Ah, actually, I have a definition. It's actually in the book, but definition. It is an arrangement. Now, that is, there's lots of technical definitions of covenant. Some are like paragraph long. Purposely, mine is an arrangement. Why would I say that? Well, because there's all types of covenants in Scripture. And it's the context that tells us what kind of covenant. It is an arrangement. All covenants are an arrangement. But example, like the Noahic covenant, God is not asking Noah to really do, you know, to accept it. He just dumps it on him. This is what I'm going to do. Whereas the uh, 
Old covenant with Israel on Mount Sinai is involved some sort of acceptance. The new covenant, nope, we'll talk about that. And so they're just all different. There's the Davidic covenant, which we're not going to deal with here during this session, which is a different kind of a covenant. So, but they're all arrangements. They're arrangements of which the, the context will tell us what type of arrangement. So you get these elaborate definitions like from Meredith Klein, who is a brilliant guy, but is elaborate, these suzerainty treaties, there's elaborate things. My point is that doesn't apply across the board. It just doesn't. Uh, so I'm sticking with it. It is an arrangement. And then, and then we have to look at the context and say, what kind of arrangement is it? Is there something where people have to do something, they have to accept it, or is it God just telling them, this is what I'm going to do? That's the idea. Questions about that? Covenant is an arrangement. It's it. It's arrangement. So in, when we get to the new covenant, particularly we'll be in Hebrews 8, the new covenant, we'll say, well, it is also a, um, it is a testament so, so example, not that is, it's like a, you, someone has to die for it to k- kick into effect. Okay, so a testament is a covenant. Not all covenants are testaments. That's, that's a good example. So the new covenant, Jesus has to die. Otherwise, it doesn't work. That's it. But not all covenants are, are that way. That way. So, you know, all covenants are arrangements. The new covenant is also like a will, testament, a will, but it's, it's a peculiar arrangement. It's a peculiar arrangement. So if you can think of an exception to that, let me know. I'm not aware of any. That's kind of how we go. So, so we have to pay attention to the context of when we c- come across covenant. Okay. Question. Oh, okay. The, the blood comes into it in particular. Now, when we talk about discussing covenants in Scripture, basically, especially if we go from the New Testament looking back, it, the Bible deals with the Old Covenant in relation to the New Covenant. And both of those have to do with salvation. And we're going to talk about that. They have to do with picture fulfillment where both of them, blood, is absolutely critical. Has to be blood. Noahic covenant, no. Not at all. Davidic covenant, no. But the old covenant, new covenant, because those are the two covenants that in particular are talking, are really dealing with salvation. One's a picture, one's a fulfillment. And we, we will address that. Yes. And then there's all the others. Actually, that's why we start with the Abrahamic covenant. So I'll, I'll put my cards on the table. The Abrahamic covenant is the unveiling of God's plan, which is have a people, take them into his land. That's the plan. The Abrahamic covenant is going to embrace both the old and the new covenants. From the point of view of the Old Testament, 
the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant is going to be the old covenant. From the point of view of the New Testament, particularly from, you know, Pentecost onward, the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant is going to be the new covenant. So it just depends where you are in Scripture as to how you view the Abrahamic covenant. You'll you'll see that. Okay? So let's read a little bit. Genesis 15, beginning at verse 1 here. I'm reading from the NIV. It's only a nearly inspired version. Maybe you got the ESV, an extra special version. So, and of course, the New American Standard, God's version. You know, so you choose whichever one you want. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I'm your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can I? What can you give me since I remain childless? And the one I will inherit, the one who will inherit my estate, is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, you have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir, which is the cultural custom. Then the word of the Lord came to him, this man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring or your seed B. Now, I've been told, I've, I've not been to the Middle East on a clear night, so you can see the stars. I've been told with the naked eye, there you can see about 5,000 with the naked eye. That's what I've been told. So it's just a, lo- a large number. That's the whole point. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. Now, this is interesting. When it says he credited it, of course, this is quoted in Romans 4 about saving faith. Abraham is justified through this thing. And when you, ask, you look at this, you go, what kind of gospel message is this? He just promised him just he's going to give him an heir. That's it. And then through that heir, he's going to give him a bunch of relatives. And all of a sudden, this is a gospel message. Now, this is the, this is the point we're going to, we will address as we progress through this. That the, now, remember, we want to make a distinction between... We're not going to talk about Old Testament, New Testament. We're going to talk about Old Covenant era, which is Mount Sinai to the cross, and the New Covenant era, Pentecost, the second coming. So before that, you have Genesis, which is the patriarchal period. The patriarchal period is simply the time of getting the pieces in place for the game to begin. The game begins at Mount Sinai. We will get to that. We get to Hebrews 8 because it calls the Old Covenant the First Covenant. And you go, how in the heck can he get to get the Old Covenant as a First Covenant? No matter how I count, it's not. But that's how the game begins. Because it's the time. Well, look at that. That's the time of the picture. It's the time of the picture. So the game begins at Mount Sinai. In Romans 5, it describes the first formal giving of law is not to Mount Sinai. We know there is law before that. We know that. We see evidence of it. But the argument of the Apostle Paul in Romans 5, verses 12 and 13, is that the first formal giving of law is not to Mount Sinai, the Mosaic law. And so, so this brings us to the conclusion that the time for believing 
doesn't begin until Pentecost. Jesus introduces it when he says his, his ministry is the message of his ministry. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is near or at hand. That is the time for entering the real kingdom, spiritual kingdom, salvation is about to begin. Which is why everything before that, the patriarchal period, Genesis, the old covenant era, Mount Sinai to the cross, is not the time for believing. Now, when you say that, we know there's always a remnant of believers. But the gospel isn't clear. Like David, obvious believer. Romans 4 says Abraham and David are, are two examples of saving faith. How, how did David become a believer? Well, it makes no mention whatsoever. No mention. And Abraham, I mean, this clearly doesn't look like a gospel message, no matter how you cut the cake. Because salvation in the Old Testament is an asterisk. Is an asterisk. And, and that's why it doesn't kick, time for believing doesn't kick in until Pentecost. You say, well, what about the Gospels? Yeah, the problem is, is that when we're going to get there, when we talk about the people of God, is that we're going to look at Israel. God has no intention of saving Israel. He has no intention. That means Jesus' immediate audience is not going to buy what he has to say. It's not going to happen. We're going to look at that and ask the question, why did he speak to them in parables in Matthew 13? We will discuss that. But the Gospels are not clear in and of themselves. When you and I read them, we're reading them because we bring over the rest of the teaching passages of the New Covenant era, Romans onward. We bring that with us. We think the Gospels are fantastic. But if you remove that and you just look at the Gospels, it is not clear. It's only clear. That means the, the message of the Gospels is for those who are believers this side of Pentecost. That's what they're for. They're really not for the immediate audience. We're going to look at that because he has no intention of saving them, except for a small remnant. Jeff, you said, uh, you said yes. twice, uh, the old is from Abraham through the cross, and the new starts at Pentecost. What about the, the, no, the, the old, old, old covenant era is Mount Sinai to the cross. Okay, Mount Sinai to the cross. Right. And then the new starts with Pentecost. What yeah. About Oh, it's just a transitional period. That's all it is. Because everything that happens in the New Covenant happens on the cross. You know, the, the, you know the, um, the, that curtain that separates the holy place from the most holy place in, in the t- temple gets torn from top to bottom on the cross. But historically, the beginning of the new come there, the spirits poured out, the time for believing doesn't kick in until Pentecost. So you just have a transition. That's all. Okay? Question? Yeah. You're a gullible group. This is good. <laughs> yes, the new come there, it actually lasts forever. Really. It goes on, it goes on forever. So here in Genesis 15... God promises Abraham an heir, and of course, the idea is he, Abraham has promised you know, uh, I, Isaac, then he's, and then through Isaac, Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. These become the 12 tribes of Israel. Ta-da, 
we're now going to have, by the time you get through the exodus from Egypt, you, they go to Mount Sinai. Now we're going to have the establishment of the old covenant in Israel as a nation. And they're going to be given his law, the, Mos- the Ten Commandments, and the rest of the Mosaic law. Okay, so that'll be, that's, that, so we need to move out to the old covenant. But notice is that when you read Genesis 15, it looks obvious that he's talking about physical Israel and a physical land. That's, part of the, that's the Abrahamic promise. We don't learn that this is just a temporary picture until we get to the book of Galatians. So that's the idea. So now we're moving. So the Abrahamic covenant embraces both the old and the new covenants, picture fulfillment. Okay, now if you need an illustration, because it, it, I do a lot of stuff in, in Europe, but let's say you have to have a cultural, have to have an illustration that bridges cultural gaps. So football, I'm obviously a big guide to American football, but it works with soccer or what the rest of the world calls football. Okay, and that is this. So the Abrahamic covenant, first off, we go back to the Noahic covenant. We know what that is. But in uh, I live in Phoenix. Arizona State University is there. By the way, the Super Bowl is there this year, but let's not talk about that. Uh, But. Arizona State has the field. The field is called Frank Cush Field. It's Sun Devil Stadium, but Frank Cush Field. Okay, so the Noahic Covenant is the guarantee of the world's going to stick around until God's plan's accomplished. Well, that's the field. The earth is the field. Now, the field is not the game, but you can't have the game without the field. So football analogy, the earth is the field. The Abrahamic covenant, when you go to a football game, there's guys hawking programs, overpriced things that tell you what's going on on that field this particular day. Who's playing? You know, and all, all, all the facts and figures about the players. Okay, that's the Abrahamic covenant. It, it, it's the unveiling. It's telling you what's going to take place on the field. Okay, and then the old covenant... The game has two halves, like football, has two halves. The first half is the Old Covenant, which is going to be a picture. And then the second half is the New Covenant, which is the cross, the work of Jesus, the Messiah. That's going to be the fulfillment. So that's the illustration. So now we're going to talk about the Old Covenant, which is the picture. Okay? Questions? Yes. No, it's a fair. It is, let's read it in Genesis 3.15. Of course, this is the section where after Adam and Eve fall, the Lord is cursing everything. Then he says in verse 15, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. This is a veiled sort of explanation of salvation. It is a veil. It is not clear. Let's be honest. It is not clear. We look at it through the lens of the new. We go, oh, this is the, they call it the proto-evangelium. This is the first mention of the gospel. Well, it's true. But if you just are reading this, you go, well, this is not really crystal clear. 
But this is. So in effect, this is a veiled mention of God's ultimate plan of salvation, which is the new covenant. Yeah, that's what it is. Because everybody who is saved, now we're talking about whether the patriarchal period like Abraham or the old covenant era like David, they're always saved because of the cross. They're all saved because of the cross to come. Always. So, yes. Yes, it's just that we don't... Let's just take Abraham for a moment. We have no idea how he knew all of it, what he knew. We we know that Abraham knew there was more than just the physical promises because he's looking for a a city whose builder and maker is God. Okay, we know how much we know. we, We have the faintest idea. And so because that period of biblical history is not the time for salvation... It's not. So the, you would say, okay, it sounds a little irreverent. When the Holy Spirit is guiding the biblical writers, he's not concerned to tell you about personal salvation. That's not his concern. That doesn't kick in until Jesus begins to introduce it. But it really becomes clear from Pentecost onward where it's crystal clear. Okay, because as we read the teaching passages of the New Covenant era, really Acts onward, particularly Romans onward, it's crystal clear. Okay, so which is why reading the Old Testament, or really, really, yeah, both the patriarchal period and the Old Covenant era, I, I, sh- I should mention, I, I do a lot in Russian-speaking places, and language is a problem because in Russian there is we we make a distinction between the old testament and the old covenant there's no distinction in Russian same word well then you have to always be kind of explain because if you just that's why people say old testament even today and biblically that's not the how the bible handles it it's typically old covenant you know mount sinai to the cross that is the period in comparison to the new covenant era, Pentecost, you know, to the second coming, we'll call that. That's really are, are the two periods that are being constantly compared and contrasted in, in the New Testament. Okay, so we need to be a bit more specific. People just throw out Old Testament, New Testament. That's really not the issue because the Old Covenant goes all the way to the cross. Through the Gospels, all the way there. Okay? That makes sense? Or you're too embarrassed to ask the question because you think it'll make you look foolish. You are foolish, but you still should ask the question. Yeah. As that's they saying, are there, is there any such thing as a bad, uh, uh, you know, a dumb question? Of course there is. I'll just never tell you if it is. So, so. That's sort of full disclosure, you know. Just so you know what's going on in my mind. Yes. New covenant secures salvation, the cross of Jesus. We're going to say the old covenant, which turn with me to uh, Exodus 19. Uh, the old covenant is a works covenant that was never meant to save. It's not a gracious covenant. It is a works covenant. And... 
this is where guys who are moving in the direction, let's say Steve and I are, they're moving that direction. Southern Seminary in Louisville is very much an example of that. They're going in that direction. We have a, we have a seminary in Phoenix called Phoenix Seminary, which is historically pretty bad, but now they have a new president from Southern Seminary. They're really go- He's really New Covenant, but they're going in a wonderful direction. Okay, so it's great to have a hometown seminary that's serious. Uh, but the issue, uh, the big issue is the old covenant. Is it a gracious covenant or a works covenant? Now, there is sort of a halfway house uh, where people will say something like this. It is a gracious covenant with legal implications. Or it's a legal covenant with gracious implications. Those are what we call oxymorons. They, they, it, that's just not possible. So let's, uh, let me explain what I mean. And I'm sure you will pester me with questions. Okay, so Exodus 19, which is Mount Sinai. Let's begin at verse 3. Then Moses went up to God and And the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Of course, that's the Exodus. Now, God was gracious to Israel. So we're not, we are not quibbling throughout Israel's history. God is unbelievably gracious to Israel, but that is not the covenant. That's the mistake. That's not the covenant. We're not saying God isn't gracious, but that's not the covenant. Now, verse 5, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasure possession. So now what kind of covenant is this? Well, it's an arrangement. What does the context say? They have to agree to it. They have to agree to it. So it's a different, it's not like the Noahic covenant. It's a different deal. It's not like the Abrahamic covenant, really. Okay, so then he says, although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back, summoned the elders of the people, and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people all responded together, we will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. Now think about that. Was that a very, you know, wisely considered response? Okay, now... I should warn you, there are two definitions of obedience in Scripture. Two definitions. One we will call evangelical obedience. That's We're saying a believer with a new heart, their life is characterized by obedience to Scripture. Characterized. We know it's not perfect, but when you look at their life as a whole, this is what characterizes them. They want to live for their Lord because they love Him. Okay. Well, then there is uh, complete obedience. This is not evangelical obedience. And many times, especially guys from a reform point of view, read back into this and say, this is sort of like evangelical obedience. No, it's not. How do we know? We need scripture to interpret scripture. 
Go to Deuteronomy 28. Right. It's exactly. This is legal or works. Legal or works. And let's just do a little sample because all of chapter 28 is about this. Now, of course, the setting here, the context is the first generation that came out of Egypt. 40 years is up. Now, virtually everybody is dead from that generation. So now they're about to cross the Jordan and Moses is going to die. Joshua is going to lead them across. And so they go over the, the old covenant one more time because there's a whole new ge- generation of people. So p- pick this up, beginning at uh, Deuteronomy 28, verse 1. If you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully follow all his commands, I, obviously the exaggeration is mine, I give you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all nations on earth. All these blessings will come on you and accompany you if you obey the Lord your God. Then it says he'll bless everything you touch. Okay, then you go over to verse 15. However, if you do not obey the Lord your God and do not carefully follow all his commands and decrees I'm giving you today, all these curses will come on you and overtake you. And then he goes on to describe, it's going to curse everything you touch. Lest you still don't catch it, Go to verse 45. All these curses will come on you. They will pursue you and overtake you until you are destroyed because you did not obey the Lord your God and observe the commands and decrees he gave you. This is a works of, this is a works covenant. This was never given to save. It is a 1500 year illustration or or what's the better way of saying that is a 1,500-year object lesson showing you the futility of trying to be accepted by God on the basis of law-keeping or works. That's, that's what it is. It, and it was never intended to save. Never. That's the idea. Questions about that? Yes. If you're thinking, yes, because he had to obey it perfectly to qualify to be our substitute on the cross, a lamb without blemish. Okay. Uh, We're going to talk about that tomorrow morning, so now Steve knows. But it was, if you're talking about Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 and 18, when Jesus says, I have not come to abolish the law, or the prophets, but to fulfill them. No, it's not talking about that. It's talking about fulfilling the purpose of the, you know, you know of, of really, you know, the whole Old Testament. I'm fulfilling its purpose by going to the cross. Because as soon as you say, or the prophets, you're not talking about law-keeping. You're not. Now, if you go to Ephesians 2 where it ta- refers to the Mosaic law as a wall of hostility because it separates Israel from the Gentiles in order for God's plan in the new covenant era to create a new people of God with no ethnic distinctions, then the Mosaic law has to be destroyed or abolished. That's true. We'll talk about that when we get to the last session 
we talk about law. Okay, so now flip over to Hebrews chapter 8. Can I ask you a quick question about, sure. about Joshua? Yes. He says uh, in verse... He was a Presbyterian with covenant children. <laughs> no, that is not something we would say today. Like I have my kids when they were younger. Mom and I are going to serve the Lord. The rest of you kids, it's crapshoot. You know? Unless you repent and believe the gospel message, you're not serving the Lord. So, so what was Joshua saying? Well, he's just talking in terms of in the Old Covenant setting, where it's, he's just saying, we are going to keep everything. We're going to serve the Lord externally. But, of course, internally, you're not going to serve the Lord unless you're actually a believer. And that's where all four of my kids homeschool, Okay. And that's a wonderful thing, but sometimes in the homeschool movement, there is this what we call patriarchal emphasis upon the family. That is, it's like Abraham, you know, my household, you know, it's like they'll talk about the father almost like a priest. Okay, he's governing, we're going to have family worship. That's like, you know, for those of you who have churches where you have uh, children's worship, that is an oxymoron. It is, you know... Because you're talking about little God-haters, and you want them to worship in song. Now, that doesn't sound very smart. Well, what about Did Joshua? That? I mean, was he able to? Yeah, well, he, no, he's a believer. Now, once again, his household would contain, quite like Abraham's household. Remember, when Abraham believed, he was given circumcision, where Romans 4 says that was a sign and seal of the righteousness that he had by faith. It was a sign of his belief. Then he's immediately told in Genesis 17 to give that sign, circumcision, to all of those in his household, the great-grandfathers down to the infants. Well, for them, belief had nothing to do with it. Nothing to do with it. So whatever it was, you you cannot say, me and my house will serve the Lord, unless everybody's in there. Yes. Yeah. Sure. He was a believer. He was a believer. But he's talking about the covenant. Yeah, but he is right. That's because it's external. But and by serving the Lord, he means I will keep the commandments. Yes, I will keep. I will keep. I will seek to keep them. But of course, he's saved by faith, so he's accepted because he, no one keeps them perfectly. He's accepted, but that doesn't change the fact that he says, this is what my household's going to do. He doesn't change that fact. Yes. Isn't there still no... Uh, ah, oh. Now you, you, you're, you're, tu- you're touching a red button on me because I used to be a Presbyterian pastor. Um, okay, no. But let, let me touch, just for the sake of our time, real quick. Uh, because you brought that up, Turn to 1 Corinthians, real quick. We'll just look at two examples, because those are two you brought up. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 16, where Paul, who normally didn't do baptizing, that was, he, he, you know, the guys in the band with Paul did the baptizing. So he says in verse 6, you know, he says, no one can say, verse 15, that I, you were baptized in my name. Then he goes, oh. Yes, verse 16, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Okay, so we got that. So then go to the very end, 1 Corinthians 16, 
which for some reason it's not done, go down to verse 15. And Paul says, You know that the household of Stephanus, ah, there they are, were the first converts in Achaia. So they're all converts. And they have devoted themselves to the service of the Lord's people. Now, I love, you know, my kids, I have 13 grandkids. And when they're little infants, they're really cute. But they're not devoting themselves to the service of the saints. Yes, they are. They're they're most precious little God-haters. They are the most precious ones, but they are little God-haters. What actually describes it in Romans 1. Okay, okay. The the, The problem is, and this is every pastor's dilemma, it's not that God cannot save someone at a young age. It's that most of the professions that come are usually false. Are usually false. Because children at a young age parrot. They they yeah, they parrot their parents. If you're worth your salt as a parent, they, of course, they will parrot you in your views. Now, when they get to be teenagers, that's what makes parenting a little tougher. Then they begin to think for themselves, and they don't necessarily parent your parents' views. They don't. That's what makes it difficult parenting teenagers. They begin to think for themselves, which they have to learn to do. And then they don't always agree with the parents. And that's tough on the parents. And that's why there have been churches, Baptist churches, that have said, we're going to put off baptism until like 16 years of age. Now, I don't think that's correct, but I understand their sentiment. They're just tired of having these early professions show been revealed to be false. Way more often. The fact is, most of the time. So to protect that, and you can't protect it, you just have to be a little wiser how you handle the situation. But that's another discussion. But That's not our purpose today. But it's a good point. But the second one that you have just in passing is the one in 1 Corinthians 7, where verses 12 through 14, where... Paul is addressing a situation Jesus did not address, a believer with an unbeliever who is married. So the gospel comes into a town, and here's a couple. One becomes a believer, the other is not. Now you have a situation Jesus never addressed. But Paul is addressing with the authority of Jesus. And so within that, of course, you say, you focus on the children of that relationship are holy. But of course, you just we've, we've neglected the verse previous, that the unbelieving spouse is declared to be holy. So whatever you're going to do to the children, you have to do to the unbelieving spouse. And I don't know any Presbyterian church is going to baptize an unbelieving spouse. And that should tell you that's not what Paul has in mind at all. And I don't think it is. The context is simply that the marriage between a believer and unbeliever is legitimate in God's eyes. Still marriage. And children that come from that are not bastards, legitimate. I think that's all it means, because that's the basic meaning of holy, set apart for special use. That's all it means within the context, because we're talking about marriage, divorce, remarriage, 1 Corinthians 7. Right. Yeah, because you would think if if all of a sudden you're married to an unbeliever, they're a temple of Satan, you think, you know, yeah, it's... you know, Second Corinthians 6, you know, it describes unequally yoked. Now, the context of that is not marriage. We can discuss that another time. But it does describe the 
graphic difference between a believer and an unbeliever. And so, but Paul says, no, 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 no. As long as they want to stick in the marriage, you, you don't, you know, you don't walk away. No, no, no. You don't do that. Sounds a little counterintuitive. Because then it says if they, want to, if they want to leave, you don't try to hang on to them. That sounds counterintuitive. But that's the way it works. But that's another thing. But we're not here to discuss that. It's a good question, though. Okay. Hebrews Hebrews 10. Hebrews 8, I mean. Excuse me, I'm sorry. Okay, we're going to go down to... We'll pick it up. We will jump through because our time is moving along. Okay. Verse 1. We're going to go through verse 18. It says the law... Chapter, chapter, excuse me, excuse me. We're in chapter... No, we're chapter 8, because I jumped ahead. But I will jump ahead to make a point. Uh, We'll go to chapter 10 first. Sorry to confuse you. The law, Mosaic law, is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the reality themselves. So this is describing how it's it's a picture. It's a picture. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifice repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Make perfect meaning take away their sins. Can't do it. Otherwise, would they have not, would they have stopped being offered meaning? Of course. For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Now, stop for just a second. Go back to keep your finger there. I mean, if you have a phone, digitally keep your finger there. Leviticus chapter 4. Go to Leviticus 4. This is a grocery list of if you do a particular sin then this is the particular sacrifice you have to do. And it always ends with, if you do this, you will be forgiven. And of course, we have to square that because it says in Hebrews 10, 4, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. But the popular understanding of Old Covenant sacrifices is that they temporarily covered the sin until the cross. Not true. Not true. But, okay, so how do we handle this? It's a fair question. So, example, in verse 22 to 26, it says, when a leader sins unintentionally, by the way, there is no sacrifice in the Mosaic law for intentional sins. There is no sacrifice. It's, It's a picture it's like saying believers don't purposely sin. Now we know, yes, I do. Yeah, I do purposely sin. I don't want to stay in it, but I do purposely sin at times. Absolutely. Uh, but this is just an illustration. So, we, we, But jump to the end. So then it tells you what t- type of sacrifice. It's a little tedious. And then at the end... It says, in this way, this is verse 26, the priest will make atonement for 
This is 426 of Leviticus. 426. In this way, the priest will make atonement for the leader's sin, and he will be forgiven. They all end the same way, all throughout Leviticus 4. In what sense is he forgiven? He is ceremonially forgiven. That is, the Israelite is restored to good standing to the nation of Israel. Remember, it's just going to be a picture. They're not the real people of God. Israel, we're going to see this when we get to the people next. Israel is a temporary, unbelieving picture of the people of God. Because the Old Covenant is just a picture. That's why it doesn't do anything. That's why the context in Hebrews is you've got these professed believers who are Jewish, who are experiencing tremendous persecution for their faith, and now it seems to avoid further persecution. They're going to turn their back, they're at least seriously contemplating, turning their back on the source of persecution, which is the cross, the new covenant, and going back under the old covenant, trying to get forgiveness of sins through the old covenant sacrifices. And the author of Hebrew, whoever he may be, says, that's not possible. Blood of bulls and goats don't take away sins. Never did. Never did. did. But Israel is a picture. So if you followed the Mosaic law regarding sacrifice for your particular sin, you did it. You were restored in good standing to the nation of Israel, but not to the God of Israel. So we call it ceremonial forgiveness. Actually, that's the language used in Hebrews chapter 9. Yes. Well, Nathan shows up, the prophet, and says, you're forgiven. David repents deeply, Psalm 51, and you're forgiven. Well, David is saved, according to Romans 4, on the basis of the cross to come. He is forgiven. Not on the basis of the old covenant. Can't do that. I'm not saying that. I'm just Yeah, that's, a, that's what... Right. Well, it's more when, when you get to Romans three, twenty-six, where the discussion of justification begins in verse 21, where it says, he did, he's talking about the cross, and it says, he did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time. So, at, or verse 25, excuse me, we should start there, where it talks about he's, he does the atonement, He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. What does that mean? Context, he's talking about believers before the cross. They had their sins forgiven on the basis of the cross to come. It's the credit card analogy. You know, you go to the... They are forgiven, but but yet Jesus still has to show up in time and space in history and die. Oh, no, but the old covenant sacrifices don't forgive. They don't forgive. They're just a picture. They don't forgive. So you'd have to be, to be an Israelite, you'd have to connect the dots, a real believer like David. You have to somehow, we would say by the work of the Holy Spirit, he enables you 
to trust your life into the hands of the God of Israel. And however you're going to describe it, the gospel in the old covenant, which is not clear whatsoever, because, well, just think about this. The categories of believer, unbeliever don't exist in the old covenant. What categories do exist are Israelite and Gentiles. Israelite and Gentiles. It's not till Jesus shows up introducing how to get into the real kingdom, which is certainly not the real kingdom, spiritual kingdom, that now we have very clear categories of believer, unbeliever. Because Israel, by definition, they are the people of God. The fact that they're virtually all unbelievers except for a remnant, that's irrelevant. They are the picture of the people of God. We'll deal with that in the next hour. Who are real believers. believers. Oh, well, and there are people who are believers well, that. Absolutely true. Absolutely true. But you're looking at it from the teaching passages of the New Covenant are looking back. That's not the, what we see as we work through Scripture. You're, you're, you're going back. Well, I know it's time you live, and you're right. So there, are, there is always a remnant of believers in Israel. Because that's the argument of Romans 9. You know, Elijah, Mount Carmel. You know, he, he, he goes all, he whines to the Lord at Mount Horeb that he's the only one left. And the Lord goes, no, 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 no. 7,000 have not bowed the knee to Baal. You're not the only one. Now, that's not a lot. There, there's a number of million folks in Israel. 7,000, very small amount, but better than none. Better than one, that's right. So there's only a remnant. But remember, every, we'll deal with this next, every evaluation of Israel from the old through the new is that there are no believers. Every evaluation is that there's none. Actually, but God, we, God says, uh, he doesn't say there are uh, 7,000 who have a bound in the He says, I have reserved unto myself 7,000. Right. So it's God's duty. Oh, that's absolutely true. You're right. You're right, Gary. No, you're right. That's true. But the whole point is, is that Elijah's not alone. That's the whole point. Yes. I'm just trying to figure out how the Ninevites fall into this because they, oh. they, weren't, they weren't Israel. They, no. They, had, they believed. Not, no. They, they, it was very temporary because they were destroyed about 30, 40 years later. But uh, in the New Testament called a people that are going to judge, though. I mean, it doesn't seem like that they're completely gone. They're, their faith or whatever that happened whenever they heard the message from God and they, and they repented. The message was repent for I'm about to destroy you. They did some repenting and they weren't destroyed. That's all we know. Um, there doesn't seem to be any evidence even historically that that was long lasting. They were destroyed. I mean, so, the New Testament does talk about they're going to judge. Well, well, all that means, okay, well, it's a fair question, but hang on to that one. But that, that, that's fair. But I don't think that's what it means, but that's okay. Um, okay. Back to Hebrews 10. Keep track of our time. I just want to look at verses 5 through 10, where it says, Sacrifice, Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire. But a body you prepared for me with burnt offerings and sin offerings. You were not pleased. You know, then, of course, he says, here I am. 
you know, talks about, I've come to do your will. He's talking about the cross. Then in verse 8, it, it now clarifies that. First, he said, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings, you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them. And he, well, wait a minute, your law demands them. This is your revealed will. What do you mean you're not pleased with them? Though they were offered in accordance with the law. The idea is that, yes, the Mosaic law required them, but it never required them to actually take away your sin. If you're relying on the old covenant sacrifices, take away your sin, he is not pleased with you. Only the cross could do that. Only the cross. Hang on to that, because we're going to get to that right now. That's a good point. But, so this is... uh, Okay. So, so it doesn't, and that idea does not... Well, okay, now if you're talking about, uh, if you're talking about appeals to Israelites to be saved, no, you find that throughout the the Old Covenant era. You do. Like um, Isaiah 55. That is an evangelistic appeal. The fact that God has no intention of saving them, Allah will look at that, uh, Isaiah chapter 6, is also true. But that doesn't change the fact that he's constantly calling on them to be circumcised in their hearts, which is another way of saying to believe. He's constantly calling them to do that. Yeah, but right. So it sounds like you're saying that that idea was not introduced until no, Jesus came. No, it's not clear until Jesus shows up. First off, remember there is no great commission in the old, uh, in the old, both the patriarchal period and the old covenant. There's no great commission because no great commission. commission. Israel is not sent to the world, and so in the old covenant era. All you needed is a GPS. All you need is a GPS to find Israel. And by definition, you have found the people of God. We now have to take the gospel to the world because God has his elect from every tribe, nation, and tongue. And as we share the gospel, those for whom Jesus died will respond if it's the appointed time. And now we find out the real people of God. But in the old covenant era, by definition, because they're circumcised, Israel, they are the people of God. By fiat. They are. But not all saved. The answer is, the evaluation is, they're all unbelievers. Now we know there's a remnant of, always a remnant of believers in Israel, but the evaluation, which we'll get to next hour, is that there's none. And that's why they're going to be replaced. That's why Israel, physical Israel, is going to be replaced. But but right now we're looking at the old covenant is going to be replaced, and that's Hebrews eight. Yes. So, so being a light to the Gentiles, so mm-hmm. all that period of time, you yeah, God fearing people who were Gentiles coming. Yeah. That wasn't a great commission you're saying, but that was a testimony to yeah. to the picture. Right. The picture. Yeah. Him. Well, that's true. But but right. yeah, but the. The, they were a light to the Gentiles in as much as the Gentiles observed them. But if you're talking about Israel going to the nations, that ain't happening. Amen. 
That Because the Mosaic law keeps that from happening. That's why in Ephesians 2, it is called a wall of hostility, which has to be abolished if we're going to have a new version of the people of God, of Jew, Gentile, has to be abolished because the Mosaic law will not allow for what God wants to do in the new covenant era. It won't allow for it, which we'll deal in the fourth session. But yes. We have in Amen were particular examples of. of, of and we, well, we, we, in the line of Jesus, we have Rahab, we have Ruth. Yeah, right. Okay, well, we do. We, we see these little inklings, but it's not because Israel's going out to the nations with the gospel. No. That's not the reason why. So what you're really doing here is really just taking away what is... What, what well, that, that is true. Yeah, so it, if we were indulging in highbrow theological terminology, I would say I am taking you through a study of biblical theology, of Scripture in its context, what is happening, step by step, God's historic plan of salvation. That's what we're doing. We're just walking it through, and we're seeing the old covenant is a works covenant. Flip over because we, we do have to uh, go back to chapter eight. Yes. Well, before you leave it, I'm, I'm living with you. I you got me all the time. Yes. Yes. I know I was, that was next, but oh, you no, <laughs> but you are you are just so always ahead of me. You're always ahead of me. Okay. Uh, chapter eight, Hebrews chapter eight, beginning at verse seven or verse six. Let's do a, a very quick survey. It's, it says, but in fact, the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one. Since the, since the new covenant is established on better promises. I mean, that's another way of saying it. it actually does something. It's not just a picture. It actually does something. And then it says, for if there, there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, God would not have sought for another. No place would have been sought for another. Well, it sounds weird to call the old covenant in terms of something was wrong with it, but that's the context in Hebrews. If these guys, these professed believers who are Jewish, if these guys are trying to get forgiveness of sins out of the old covenant sacrifices, it it ain't happening. That's exactly the point. It's not happening. So, he says, but God found fault with the people. Now, we will get to that next. The people produced by the old covenant, because it's a works covenant, are unbelievers. Now, he's not mentioning the remnant that are believers, but they're not the result of the Old Covenant. They're the result of the New Covenant experienced in the Old Covenant era. That's it. So the Old Covenant is a works covenant, can only produce unbelievers. We will go to the book of Galatians chapter 4, Hagar, Sarah, and look at that next hour. Okay, so then he says, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and the people of Judah, it will not be like the covenant I've made with their ancestors. He's going to replace it. I mean, that's just kind of obvious. He's replacing it with a covenant that actually does something, which is the cross. And, he, of course, the two things that it accomplishes, we, we're going to just summarize forgiveness of sins 
and what we call the new heart, the work of the Holy Spirit and life of the believer, described as, I'll put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. He's not talking about actual laws. Here is where the context, Old Covenant, New Covenant. Okay, now, in the Old Covenant, Israel's unbelieving. God gives his Ten Commandments, Mosaic Law, to an unbelieving people. Is that good or bad? Will that make them better or worse? Right, because you look at Romans 5.21. He gave his law so that sin would increase. And how do you know it will increase? Well, that's Romans 7.5, where it talks about what happens when God's law confronts an unbelieving heart. What happens? Well, it says, For when we were in the realm of the flesh, an unbeliever, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us, so that we bore fruit for death. Whoa! When God's law confronts an unbelieving heart, the law is not bad. He's not the bad guy. But because our hearts are so bad, because of Adam's sin, we have a bad heart, our rebellion is stirred up so that we sin more. The historical illustration of that is Israel at Mount Sinai. God gives his law, and he's calling on external motivation, the law. He's telling these people, this is what you got to do. Ten Commandments, Mosaic Laws, what you got to do. So if they're unbelieving, except for a remnant, if they're unbelieving, will this make them better or worse? Worse. Right. So now the new covenant The motivation in the old was external law. In the new covenant, it's internal work of the Holy Spirit, which they describe, I'll put the law in your heart, meaning now I'm going to motivate you internally by the Holy Spirit, which will guarantee your life will change. It will guarantee it. Ah, old covenant, new covenant, picture fulfillment, Unbelievers, believers. However, it does say here, or the Lord says, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. Oh, I was, I, I was trying to just slide by that. <laughs> Which is the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Technically, and the... I will make, and I, that I may, uh, and it will not be like the covenant I made with your forefathers. Okay. So it's talking about the forefathers of the Jews. Okay. Hurt. I got it. You, 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 you've, I see your point. And uh, there are nine places in the New Testament that, first off, let me re- rephrase that. The most common Old Testament prophecy is that when God gets done judging Israel, northern and southern kingdoms, he's going to bring them back into the land and cause them to believe. That's the most common prophecy we've got. All the prophets mention it one form or another. They all do. Okay. But there are nine places in the New Testament, teaching passages of the New Covenant era, that quote this fulfillment of this prophecy. Nine places. Every time, every time, they are never fulfilled literally. And let me take you to an example. Turn to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9, this is not where you normally hang out, 
Because we usually, we're in there talking about election. We're going to go through 9, 10, 11 next hour. We talk about it, the people of God. But go down to verse, okay, pick it up in verse 22. Because Paul is answering the question, why would God create a people he has no intention of saving? They're non-elect. Why would he do that? It's a reasonable question. And he, he answers it. What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath, that's the non-elect, because hell awaits them, prepared for destruction. What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for, for glory, even us, whom he also called not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles? No, stop for a moment. I come, uh, I didn't grow up in a cr- Christian household. I came from a large Roman Catholic family and a history of Roman Catholic families. Okay, as far as I know, I'm the first believer in our family line. First one. I have a younger brother. He's the second. That's it in the family. I've got four brothers and a sister and, you know, no one else. Okay. But my genealogical tree going back, German, a little bit of French on one side, Irish, that's the drunk side on the other side. Uh, You know, even the German, we kill people, but we're orderly. We're very, we take good notes. We take good notes. That's what we do. And so, but all of those ancestors, and I, I had a broad brother who, who, get, who put a big binder together of all the ancestors, which was very helpful. But all those ancestors, they were unbelievers, had to be there for me to be here. But they're in hell. And it's, and you know, for all of us as believers, it's a marvel to us. Why did he choose me? Because I was clueless. I mean, I was, I was not a thoughtful Catholic. I went to Catholic school. I can't remember. I went to Mass all the time. I can't remember a conscious thought toward God. I can't remember. And I just concerned for sports in their season. And through an old girlfriend, when I was a junior, I was right before my third year at Penn State. I attended a meeting only because I was head over heels over her. And I went to this meeting, and I became unbelievably convicted of my sin. I became a believer, I think, within the day. In my life, that was September of 1950. I mean, 70. And I was born in 50. And my life's been just radically changed ever since. But it wasn't because I was what the Puritans called a seeker. I was not a seeker. I was I was indifferent. And you marvel, why? You know, I'm no different than anybody else. But that's what Paul's getting at here. But he goes on when he says he's going to save people not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles, which is a strange thing in biblical history, because salvation always is through the Jews, historically. As he says in Hosea, now he's going to quote Hosea 1.10 and 2.23, or in the opposite order. He's going to quote them. I will call them my people who are not my people. I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. Stop right there. In this context, who are the not my people? Gentiles. It's very clear. But you know, the book of Hosea is a simple book as far as the storyline. It's just a history of the Jews. 
That's all it is. History of the Jews. They're bad, bad, bad to the bone from beginning to end. That's, that's Israel. Well, he has nothing about Gentiles in the book of Hosea. Because Israel is a picture of the real people of God, which is going to be mostly Gentile with a little bit of Jews. That is going to be a spiritual Israel, which will replace physical Israel in the plan of God. Ah, we're back to that replacement again. But here, uh, uh, you know, under the control of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul is giving God's interpretation of Hosea 1.10 and 2.23. In the original context, it's not talking about Gentiles at all. It's just talking about Israel. But it's really talking about, ultimately, about a spiritual Israel, which is mostly Gentiles. Would we know that if we just had Hosea? No. I'd be a dispensationalist. I would be. Because that's all you had. It's like the old, I'm dating myself, Paul Harvey. Remember that? The rest of the story. Well, we're teaching passages of the new as the rest of the story. We go, oh, I'm a little surprised. I'll be expecting literal Israel to come back. And Paul says, no. Nope, nope, nope. It's not literal. It's the spiritual people, mostly Gentiles. And we're going to look at, we get to the land. It's a land that doesn't end, which is the new heavens, new earth. It's not land of Canaan. That's just going to be a temporary picture of a land, eternal life. That never ends. So we're back to picture fulfillment. But within picture fulfillment, covenants get replaced. The old gets replaced by the new. Physical Israel is going to be replaced by spiritual Israel. The physical land of Canaan is going to be replaced by a land that doesn't end. And old covenant law, Ten Commandments, Mosaic law is going to be replaced by the law of Christ. And that is how scripture fits together. So we'll pick this up, take a little break, pick this up and move into the people of God next. This message was produced by the New Testament Reformation Fellowship, reforming today's church with New Testament church practices. Permission is hereby granted for you to reproduce this message. You can find us on the web at www.ntrf.org. May God bless you as you seek to follow Him in complete obedience to His Word. May your faith in the Lord Jesus be strengthened and your daily walk with Him deepened.